Matthew chapter 23 is where we find ourselves. And as we come to this chapter in Matthew's Gospel, considering the kings last week, we find it to be a bit of a transition. Previously, chapters 19 to 22 indicated that the religious leaders <clears throat> had failed. They had failed in their job to lead the people in God's way. And now we see verse 23 coming right before another section, verse, uh, chapters 24 and 25, which introduces further evidence and the ultimate judgment. And Jesus is going to pronounce then the judgment of what's going to happen, not just with the religious leaders within a generation, but actually the whole land of Israel and the Jewish nation as a whole. And as we look at this passage, we'll see several similarities. If you keep your eyes open at some of the details, you'll see several similarities between what he says here and what he said in the Sermon on the Mount. First of all, he's going to consider the way of the ungodly leader, and then the way of the godly leader, which he's going to, of course, recommend to his disciples and the crowds that are there to hear him. And finally, he's going to begin a, a pretty elaborate section of what's called the woes against the Pharisees, or divine pronouncements of judgment against the Pharisees for specific actions that they have undertaken, and how those actions are out of step with God and His Word. So we pick it up in chapter 23, verses 1 to 7, in the way of ungodly leaders, which Jesus describes to His disciples and the crowds that are there. He says this, Jesus says to the crowds and to His disciples, the teachers of the law and the Pharisees sit in Moses' seat, so you must obey them and do everything they tell you. But do not do what they do, for they do not practice what they preach. They're hypocrites. They tie up heavy loads and put them on men's shoulders, but they themselves are not willing to lift even a finger to move them. Everything they do is done for men to see. They make their phylacteries wide and the tassels on their garments long, and they love the place of honor at banquets and the most important seats in the synagogue. They love to be greeted in the marketplace and to have men call them rabbi or teacher. Jesus says the way of ungodly leadership is the way of hypocrisy, and the way of desiring prominence or, or having other people make you prominent and putting you up on a pedestal, so to speak. And notice how this is directed, first and foremost, even though the religious leaders are there, it's directed towards the disciples and the crowds, first and foremost, towards the crowds, why? In order to warn them against their false teachers who are leading them astray. And for the disciples, in order to warn them against committing similar sins as the false teachers, because in just a few months, these disciples would become what the New Testament calls apostles, many of them would be, and they would be the ones spreading the good news of the kingdom about Jesus' death and resurrection, and, and Jesus is warning them, don't do it the way you've seen it. Don't do it the way the religious leaders have done it. Practice what you preach. Now these woes that Jesus is about to give in a few moments' time, they are contrasted, or they're a corollary to the Beatitudes that you might remember from the Sermon on the Mount. In that passage, he says, blessed are the peaceful, or the peacemakers. Blessed are the merciful. And he goes through a list of individuals who are blessed, and we considered that some time ago. But interestingly, what Jesus is doing, both in that passage and this, he's acting or enacting uh, a sort of Old Testament prophet motif. The prophets in the Old Testament could give two types of what you might consider oracles. An oracle is a pronouncement from God to the people. And they could give two 
basic types. One is an oracle, oracle of blessing. That is, you will have divine favor if you will do this or respond in this way or follow God in this manner. But there are also oracles of woe. That is, a divine pronouncement and judgment is coming. Why? And then the prophet would explain the reasoning why it was coming. We see this throughout the Old Testament. And Jesus is the quintessential prophet. He's more than a prophet, but he is the quintessential prophet in the sense that he can give the ultimate divine verdicts, both positive and negative, because he is God. He's the one who sent every single one of the Old Testament prophets. Well, the Pharisees and the experts in the law, the, the ones who had just been trying to trick Jesus, you remember? They have a legitimate place of authority, Jesus says. So what he does not say is, okay, because they have been wrong, because they've been tricking you, the people, because they've been hypocrites, therefore you can ignore everything and anything they say or do. No, he says, they have a legitimate place of authority. God has given them a legitimate place of authority, and you must follow them when? Verse 3, the first part of verse 3. So listen to what they tell you from God's Word. That is, when they're truly interpreting and teaching to you from God's Word, you have to listen because they have a place of authority that is God-given. It's called Moses' seat here. This is not a literal seat, of course. But this was a figurative way to express the fact that the religious leaders, when they went to the synagogues especially, they would sit on a seat that was on a slightly raised platform, and then the people would sit on the floor below them. And so they had this seat or this chair from which they expounded and explained the Word of God to the people. We actually still use the this, this same phrasing, and it, it comes from this Old Testament idea. We use this at our modern universities, although it's not as common anymore. We, we might call a professor the chair of philosophy, or he holds the chair of biology. That's where it comes from, even though, of course, our lecturers today, the vast majority of them, lecture while standing, and the students are sitting in chairs. But this is the idea. They have a legitimate place of authority, but the second half of verse 3 is the key. Do not follow their actions. Follow their teachings when they're teaching you the Word of God. But do not follow their actions. Why? Because they're hypocrites. They're teaching the truth, but they refuse to follow it themselves. You see, they make the following of God a heavy burden on the people instead of freedom and delight. Verse 4. Remember what Jesus said in Matthew 11.30? Come to Me, all you who are weary and heavy laden. One of the most beautiful passages in Scripture. He says, my yoke is easy, my burden is light. But the religious leaders, their burden was heavy because they had not just taught the law, which is what they should do. They had added to the law. They had added what's called a fence around the law. Now the idea here is that if you took a given Old Testament command, something like the Sabbath. Keep the Sabbath day holy. How do you do that? The Sabbath was a day of rest and worship to God. The Jewish people observed it starting Friday night through Saturday. So it was their Saturday Sabbath rest. Now, what the Pharisees had done, and they had added all sorts of laws or extra rules to that law. What it means is, in order not to work on the Sabbath, so you're resting, you can only walk this many steps on the Sabbath, and you had to keep track. Otherwise, you're working. You, you can't do this, and you can't do this, but you can do this, but only in these three situations, but not in these other situations. You, you can't pull an apple off of a tree or a, a piece of uh, fig fruit off of a tree because that would be harvesting, and that's work, 
And so you can't do that either. So they had all these extra rules and rituals for every single law. And it was a burden to the people. He says here, and in other passages in the scripture, that entering into the kingdom and persevering in God's kingdom is not based on performance, though. It's not based on whether you can attain this list of rules. But the Pharisees essentially had dumbed it down to that sort of an idea. They had multiplied the number of ways in which a person could go against God. But they had failed to teach or help the people to please God. Verses 5 to 7, they obeyed God's commands, but for the wrong reason. Why did they obey them? For the praise of men. He says two of the ways that they are hypocrites, or that they try to get people to think of the religious leaders as wonderful or great or put them on a pedestal, was one, the, this thing called phylacteries. This was a small little box, usually made out of leather, in which would have a tiny scroll with an inscription from Scripture, some passage of Scripture. And they would wear those when they were in their full sort of Pharisaic garb. They would wear those uh, as part of their headdress right here on their forehead. And they would also wear one attached to their arm. This was to literally follow what Deuteronomy 11.18 says. Lay up these words of mine in your heart and your soul and bind them as a sign on your hand and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. So God says his word needs to dwell in their hearts and their minds. It needs to be ever-present. They need to be constantly reminding themselves of God's truth. And so they actually wore God's truth on themselves. But they kept making it more and more elaborate. Also these tassels. This is a fascinating one. Jesus would have worn these same tassels. These were little extra additions to their clothing at the bottom. And this was a reminder to the people to obey the laws of God. It was just a daily reminder. All the men walking around have these little tassels on the end of their robes. And it was a reminder, follow God's law, because this is what Numbers 15 told them to do. But they had twisted this, and they had gotten into a competition to see who could have the longest tassels, the most ornate tassels, the biggest tassels. It would be kind of like if, if we judged people and their Christian spirituality based on how big of a Bible they brought to church. And so everybody keeps bringing larger and larger Bibles. I remember uh, one time when I was in high school, a friend of mine, he decided he would do this because it was actually in that church, it was, that was almost to the extent where we were doing that sort of thing. A person was kind of judged or evaluated on how serious they were as a Christian, on what Bible they brought and how big it was and what translation it was. It was, it was very foolish. But my friend, in order to make a humorous point, um, he brought this massive family Bible and then along with it, he brought a massive Strong's Concordance of the Bible that can look up every word in the Bible and where it's found. And he's lugging these things around to youth group. Well, he was making the point, no, that's, that's not what makes you godly. And Jesus is making that same point. They, these religious leaders had elevated themselves instead of God. <clears throat> and the scribes and Pharisees were guilty of pride, and they wanted everyone to see how important they were. So we move then from the way of ungodly leadership to the way of godly leadership, which is found in verses 8 to 12. He says in verses 8 to 12, But you, that is the, the disciples and the crowd, but especially the disciples, you are not to be called rabbi, for you have only one master, and you are all brothers. Do not call anyone an earthly father, for you have one father, and he is in heaven. Nor are you to be called teacher, for you have one teacher, the Christ. The greatest among you will be your servant, for whoever exalts himself will be humbled, and whoever humbles himself 
will be exalted. Jesus speaks about authority here in verses 8 and 10. Who, who is the ultimate authority in the church? Who is the ultimate teacher in the church? It's not the religious leaders, and it's not to be his disciples who will later on become apostles. They're not to be the main or the exclusive teacher or authority. Earthly leaders such as the disciples and the apostles don't have that ultimate authority. Only God has the ultimate authority, and Jesus is the ultimate teacher and head of the church. That's what Jesus is getting at here. He, he says, don't be concerned about positions and power and how people view you and titles. Because that's the way the rest of the kingdoms of this world work. We've all met that individual, uh, or many of them perhaps, where you're, you're having a conversation. It's the first time you've met this individual at a party or a function or a social gathering, whatever it is, and you say, oh, what do you do? And then they give you their title at work, and you immediately think, yeah, that's a bit of nonsense. That means nothing. Have you, you, you've heard this, right? You've, you've seen people who've given you this long, elaborate title, and you're like, I don't even think they know what that means. But it sounds fancy. It sounds important. And the purpose of that particular title, especially if, it, if they're kind of working for themselves or something, and they've given themselves the title, it's to make you think that they're really important. And that's what the religious leaders were doing. We still do this today. I recall a few years ago, I was helping uh, organize and run an event which had many uh, pastors coming to that event. And so we had a packet of information for them as well as a name card for those who had RSVP'd. And so I'm going around making sure that everyone has what they need before the event starts. It's a few minutes before we started. And uh, a pastor showed up <clears throat> who had not RSVP'd. He just showed up and said, hey, can I still take part? We said, absolutely, of course, no problem. Um, we'll, we'll get you a packet of information. And I said, I'm sorry, because we're just about to start. I'll just have to handwrite your name card, and, and we'll go with that. He said, that's fine. So let's call this pastor John Smith. So I, I, I wrote on the name card, John Smith. And I gave him the packet of information, made sure he had everything, welcomed him, handed over to him, and he looks at the name tag before he puts it on, and with a sneer on his face, says, Doctor. <laughs> Doctor John Smith. And I, I must say, it was one of those few, not, well, not few moments, it was one of the many moments in my life where um, I really had a few choice words I wanted to say, and, and the Holy Spirit hopefully helped me to pull back, and I said, well, I'm sorry, sir, I don't have time. If you want to write doctor, go ahead. I have to go take care of something, and I walked away. But I, that, that stuck in my memory because it, it was so strange to me. Like, really, that's what you care about? That's not the point of this, organi this organized activity at all. And, and you're going to sneer because I didn't give you a particular title. But that was contrasted in my mind a few years later when I had the privilege to learn under uh, a teacher for a short period of time who is a leader in his field in the world. He has three earned doctorates. And he has taught at one of the most prestigious universities in the world. And he has also published many, many papers and articles and peer-reviewed journals and, and other writings and books. And I had the opportunity, the first time I met him, along with a few other individuals, I had known about him, I had read several of his works, and, and I just said, well, hello, Dr. Smith, my name is, and introduced myself. And right away, he says, don't call me doctor, just call me John. And then he immediately started asking my friends and I about ourselves, getting to know us. And that's how he was throughout the entire year. He, he didn't care about the accolades. He didn't care about the titles. And he has more honors to his name than you could ever list on a resume. 
But that, that's not why he did what he did. That's not why he studied what he studied. That's not why he learned multiple languages so he could lecture in multiple languages around the world. He did all of that because that's how God had gifted him. And he wanted to serve God. And he didn't care about the titles. And that's what Jesus is saying is the way of godly leadership. It's not about whether, whether other people praise you. It's not about your titles. It's not about positions of authority. It's about humble service for God. That's true leadership. That's the, the type of godly leadership Jesus is teaching us here. There's only one true and ultimate teacher in the church, and it's not you and it's not me, it's Jesus. No one can take that role. He's the only one who really deserves that place of prominence. Now let me pause here, because I think there's a question that's been coming up. I've been speaking with individuals in our congregation. It's come up in our afternoon service as well. And that is, we, we've seen Jesus interacting with the religious leaders, and it's not going well for them. He's pointing out how they have been poor, incompetent leaders, and really just ungodly leaders for the people. But it begs a question, if the religious leaders knew the word of God so well, they had parts of the Old Testament memorized, they knew it better than anyone in this room, myself included, and yet they got it so wrong, then what hope do you or I have as a Christian when we study God's word? Are we just getting it equally wrong? Is there, is there any way to interpret it correctly? And the answer is yes. How? Let Jesus be your teacher. Let Jesus be your teacher because he's the author of the scriptures. He is the ultimate interpreter of his word. And that was the problem. Because he was telling them, no, this is what God's word means. This is how it should be applied. This is how it works in tandem with the will of the Father. And they said, no, we're not following that. We're going to do it our way. They were not humbly submitting to the only one who could tell them what God's word actually meant and, and how to follow it. But we have God's word complete. They didn't. We have God's spirit, if we're a Christian, to guide us. And we have Jesus teaching throughout the scriptures in the New Testament especially in the Gospels, we have his teachings to show us how to interpret the Old Testament because he's constantly referring to it and showing us how we should understand it. So we can understand it. We can properly read it. It still takes effort. It's not just going to happen. But we have an infallible guide, an infallible teacher. And he says that each of us are brothers and sisters together in the church. That is, we have equal status before God. So just because one person's a pastor, one's a deacon, one's a small group leader, one's a Sunday school teacher, one's a new member of the church, one's a, the, the newest Christian in the church. All of us are on equal footing before God. Because our situation before God is not predicated on a title that we have or a position we hold for a time. He goes on to say in verse 9, there's only one spiritual father, that's God. Because, of course, if everyone is a brother or sister on equal footing before God, by the way, that equal footing before God doesn't mean we don't have different roles in the church. There are different roles or functions in the church, and God has told us very clearly in the book of Corinthians, for instance, that we are to use our spiritual gifts. Whatever spiritual gifts he's given us, and each of us, if you're a Christian, you have at least one spiritual gift from God, and you're commanded to use it for the betterment of his body, the church, and for evangelism, to tell others about him. So we may have different positions or uh, roles in a sense, but that should not be our focus. Our focus should all be equally that we're brothers and sisters in Christ 
and that we should be equally serving with whatever he's given us because Christ is our only spiritual father. And yet, we find very strange oddities in church history, like in the Catholic Church, even up to this day, the Pope is called the Holy Father. That's a direct violation of this passage. The Pope is not the Holy Father. He's neither holy nor our ultimate spiritual father. But that's what they mean by it. The only person who could ever claim that title, spiritually speaking, in its ultimate sense, is Jesus. And Jesus says, don't use those type of titles, those ultimate sort of titles, for a human on this earth because you, will, you can get it wrong. You can fail. He says that is only God's prerogative. But we too as evangelicals often fall into similar traps. Perhaps we, just to give one instance of this, need to rethink the term reverend, which is often applied to pastors. What does that term mean? First of all, that term is never found in the New Testament. Now, that doesn't mean it's bad, but it's just never found in the New Testament, which is interesting to consider. But what does that term mean? It means to revere or to place on a pedestal. Well, should you and I be placing any person on a pedestal or revering them? No, Jesus is the only one who should ever be revered or placed on a pedestal. That's most likely a violation of this passage. But interestingly, that, that particular term is contrasted with the term pastor, which is found in the New Testament and literally means a servant. As does the word deacon, by the way. The two primary roles to help guide the church in the New Testament age, pastor and deacon, both speak of servanthood, not of position and authority. Because Jesus is the only one with ultimate authority. This passage is not saying, by the way, that you can't call anyone your teacher at school or that you can't call anyone your father in the biological sense. The rest of the New Testament uses these terms. What it's saying is don't apply those terms in the ultimate sense to any human. Only apply it to Jesus because he is the ultimate teacher and God is our ultimate father. This is similar to what Paul says later on in the New Testament. Follow me, he says. Now, he was a pastor. He was an apostle. He, if anyone had authority and weight... Paul, with all of his intellectual ability, with all of his cultural ability, with his Roman citizenship, with the fact that he was an apostle, one of the very few who had seen the risen Lord Jesus, and he was the last one to see the risen Lord Jesus. And Jesus specifically, personally, revealed himself to Paul in a unique way that all the other apostles didn't get. If anyone could claim a position, it was Paul. But what does he say? He doesn't say, follow me, period. Or, look to me, or I'm the example. He says, Follow me as I follow Christ. Inasmuch as I am reflecting and pointing you to Jesus, yes, follow me. But don't follow me in and of myself. Follow me only in as much as I'm pointing you to Christ. And that, that should be our goal as a Christian. All of us are signposts, or that's how we should operate. Signposts pointing people to Jesus. <clears throat> Verse 11 says, true leadership in the kingdom is servanthood. So no attention grabbers or status seekers are to be in God's kingdom. It is God who raises up and puts down, verse 12, he says. So God, first to last, must be our focus. Not any earthly authority or position or role or person who wants prominence. So we see the way of ungodly leadership, the way of godly leadership, and now Jesus is going to be specific as he pronounces things, woes against the religious leaders. We'll consider just the first few. In verses 13 to 15, he says the religious leaders are keeping people from
from the kingdom of God. Woe to you, teachers of the law and the Pharisees, you hypocrites. You travel over land and sea to win a single convert, and when he becomes a convert, you make him twice as much a son of hell as you are. These are some of the strongest words in the whole New Testament. Jesus is not holding back. He's still in control. But what he's saying is absolutely true, and it's necessary. But it's, it's quite strong. He says, in essence, you have slammed the door to heaven in the face of different individuals. And verse 15 makes it very clear there is such a thing as a false path to God. You can be sincere and think you are sincerely following a path to God, and you can be sincerely wrong and have devastating consequences for all of eternity. That is something worth considering. There are false paths to God. He says you make them twice as much a child of hell as they were before. Because now they think they're okay. But they're not. You've just traded one false religious path for another. The religious leaders were also teaching nonsense instead of godliness. Verse 16. Woe to you blind guides. You say, if anyone swears by the temple, it means nothing. But if anyone swears by the gold of the temple, he is bound by his oath. You blind fools. Which is greater? The gold... Or the temple that makes the gold sacred. They, they had this elaborate way of, of promising to do things. And then they also had elaborate ways of getting out of it on a technicality. They had made all these very strange uh, weights and measures. You see, they were blind to the truth. They'd falsely promise, they'd give their word so that they could get out of it by using one technical get-out-of-jail-free card. You see... The problem there was that everything that you could invoke to swear upon, God says, Jesus explains it here, says, don't you get it? Everything, you ultimately have to invoke God in it. If you swear by the tree outside, God's the one who ultimately created that tree. If you swear on your ancestor's grave, as some people like to do, which is a very thing, strange thing to swear on. So what does that mean? If you don't come through, are you expecting something to happen with the grave? What, it, it, we come up with these elaborate ways of, of swearing an oath or promising something. And he says, no. Because God's the one who gives life and takes away life. God is the one who created things like gold. And God is the one who is worshipped at that altar in Jerusalem, in the temple. It's his gold, it's his temple, it's his altar. So no matter what you swear by, you're invoking God. And God's not impressed with your technicality so that you can get out of keeping your word. Jesus had already said in Matthew chapter 11, let your yes be yes and your no, no. What he's saying there is for his followers, be honest. Always be truthful. Be known to be men and women of your word. You should not need to invoke some extra thing in order to have someone believe you. I remember a good friend of mine, he, he kind of got into this habit. Of, uh, and he didn't mean anything by it. I did trust him. He was, he was a very trustworthy individual. But he had picked up a bad habit. <clears throat> Before he would say something that would be, um, I guess, a little bit more surprising to some people as he's telling a story, you know, he would say, now, now I'm being honest here. This is what happened. And I'm, I pulled him aside one time. I was like, really, man? You're being honest? Like, so you weren't being honest in the 20 minutes you were talking before? What's going on here? I know you're trying to be honest, so why do you even need to bring that in? This, we do this all the time, even in our society. So this is not new. This is consistent. And Jesus says, no. No. Your actions need to be honest. Your words need to be honest. And he says... 
God judges our words and our actions for truth and honesty, and he's not impressed by malicious and deceitful technicalities. Or to say it a different way, your actions might keep you out of a human court of law on a technicality, but it's never going to keep you out of God's court of law on Judgment Day. He knows every intention of your heart, every word that you speak, and he will hold it to account. Let us consider one warning and two conclusions here. The warning is this, and I I bring this up because I think it's so vitally important for us to understand. This, This passage, sadly, this passage has been used in human history several times to push an anti-Semitic agenda and to try to say that Jesus was anti-Semitic, which is very strange since Jesus was Jewish and so were his disciples. But yet, many, including the Nazis, used this passage so that they could then enact violence against Jewish people. But Jesus is not speaking against all Jews here. If they would just read the first few verses, they would know that. But rather, he's speaking to the rebellious Jewish leaders. And furthermore, the real issue that's causing Jesus' very harsh condemnation is not their Jewishness, it's their sin. The real problem here has nothing to do with Jewishness. It has to do with sin and rebellion in the human heart. And that's common to every human being on the planet. That is what is condemned here. And all of us are prone in the world systems in which we live. We are all prone to this way of ungodly leaders. But now two conclusions, which tie together. First, guard against pride and hypocrisy, which are always linked. The religious leaders were hypocrites and they were proud. Remember the words of Scripture. God resists the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. You you want grace? Humble yourself before the almighty hand of God and he will lift you up in due time. God resists the proud but gives grace to the humble. This is the way of godly leadership. And secondly, tied to it, seek the place of servanthood. Seek humility and servanthood in God's kingdom. That's the way Jesus says his kingdom will work. And it's, it's in stark contrast to all the other kingdoms of the world. His kingdom works on humility and servanthood. Astounding. I I saw an example of this recently, which deeply touched me. It was an author I really appreciated. He was a pastor who's now gone on to be with the Lord. But his example is commendable because it illustrates for us what this passage says, the way of godly leadership. You see, in his lifetime, he sold millions of copies of his books. He became very popular as an author. He was asked to teach at Bible colleges. He was asked to speak at all sorts of events. He turned most of those down. Because, you see, he chose, when he started in ministry, he was at a a small church, and he he said, unless God clearly moves me on, I'm going to stay at this church until I die or I have to retire. And he did. He stayed at the same small church for 40 years, while also writing books on the side that helped millions of people around the world. And no matter what requests came to him, come speak at this, you could speak to thousands of people at this conference, you you could have this wonderful position to come in and just lecture as a guest lecturer over here at this prestigious Bible college, and the vast majority of them, he turned it down, why? Because he believed he was where God wanted him to be, and he understood what Jesus was saying in passages like this, it's not about the titles, it's not about the accolades, it's about being a humble servant, and doing what God wants you to do the way he wants you to do it. 
But of course, far beyond any human examples we could give, our greatest example is our Lord and Master Jesus. He is the righteous one who came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. He's the ultimate example of godly leadership, and he's the one we are to follow. To say this a different way, seek to be found in the Beatitudes in Matthew 5. That is, seek to have as your life's goal to be described there, and not in this passage in Matthew 23. Because all of humanity, we could say, is going to be described by one of those two passages, and those are the only two options. And our eternal destiny is riding on it. So Christian, are you living what you say you believe? Are you humbly serving God and understanding that that is his way for godly leadership? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to come before you and to see from your word its truth. Guide us, help us understand it, and help us now as we celebrate communion that you would be with us and help us to recall and remember what you've done for us. We ask this in your name. Amen.